Lightning's given away. Here comes Spezza. Spezza, one on three. Not great odds. We'll see what he can do. Inside out, back in. Welcome, welcome, folks, to another edition of Internal Budget. It's Brandon Mackey, staff writer for Silver7Sends.com here with you. Make sure you, f- you follow the podcast on Twitter at Internal Budget. And, of course, follow me at Brandon Mackey underscore. We have a very special treat for you today, something of a legend in the Ottawa Senators sphere. Uh, he is the play-by-play voice of the Ottawa Senators on TSN 1200, the Ottawa Senators radio network. It's Mr. Dean Brown. How are you, sir? Thank you for being I'm, here. I'm doing well, Brian. When you said we're having a legend coming on, I'm wondering who, who's joining us. <laughs> well, listen, as someone who, you know, whose memories growing up with the team uh, have your voice attached to them, it is a real thrill to have you here. So I, so I do appreciate it. Uh, before we kind of get into the broader uh, conversation about, you know, your career and the history of the Senators, what were your thoughts on Jacob Bernard Docker's NHL debut the other night? I thought he was good. You know, it's uh, it's it's so hard when a guy's playing his first NHL game, you know, because um, it's very it's very difficult to ever be truly ready, because no matter where you're coming from, uh, this is a massive step up. If you're coming from a European team, the KHL, junior hockey, NCAA hockey, this is the biggest step. It's the biggest final step. And it's something you've dreamed about your entire life. I thought he was really calm. I thought he was really efficient. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, when Gordon and I were talking about it on our uh, TSN 1200 broadcast, I, I, I made mention to Gordon during the intermission, and we actually talked about it in the third period. One of the things he said a couple of days earlier on a Zoom call with the media was, you know, they were asking about his game and what he thinks it's going to be like when he was in his, his first NHL game. And he said, you know what? Um, I think one of the strong suits that I have is that I'm a fast learner. I learn on the fly, you know, so uh, you figure things out. And in that, in his first game against Winnipeg, uh, in that first period, if you remember watching it, he took a couple of vicious hits. Like yeah. early on, he took two from Lowry, like, and I mean, he got rocked. Mm-hmm. And then through the rest of the game, he didn't. And it wasn't because they didn't want to hit him anymore. It's because he very quickly figured it out, how to move the puck and protect yourself, how to get out of the train tracks, how to be able to make a play and seal the puck without getting killed, you know? So to me, of all the things, you know, he did a lot of things well. um, And he's going to be a really, really good player. But the thing that I really liked, and I know it's a very subtle thing that I realize a lot of people might not pick up on it, but his ability within the same game to figure that stuff out and to be able to be an efficient player and play his game while being able to adapt to what is the size, speed, and strength of NHL players. And, and I thought, to me, that was the most impressive part of his debut. And the fact that he did it without getting rattled, too. You know, like you mentioned, he took those big hits at the beginning of the game, and it didn't phase him at all. Um, he's such an even-keel guy. I'm, I'm really excited to see what he looks like when he settles in and when he's used yeah. to being an everyday NHLer. And his debut late in the season, and that of Shane Pinto as well, 
it's emblematic of the state of the team right now. I mean, this is a year that is so important for the rebuild and, you know, for returning this team to be a competitive one again. So how would you assess the team um, now that we're into the kind of final stretch run of the season? Uh, has this been a productive year for the rebuild? Do you see them being on the right track? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and, I, and I realize that uh, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, are not happy about player usage and they wanted a lot of younger guys a lot earlier. And I get that. I understand that. You know, everybody wants to see what it's going to be. Um, but you can't rush these things, number one. And to be honest with you, some of the young players uh, weren't ready and still aren't ready to be everyday NHLers and you have to sprinkle them in. Um, but I, I think it has been a good year for the organization, mostly because uh, the young core of this team um, got better. You know, if you look at the guys who are going to be the core of this team going forward, you know, Brady Kachuk and Norris and Paul and Bathurst, you know, and Stutzla, and you, you start going through those guys, the, what's going to be the core of this team, you know, those players all made advances as players. So at this point, at least for me, and, you know, everybody, for a fan, for anybody, it's, you know, however you feel or whatever you think, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no right or wrong, you know, and people think it has to be a battle between, you know, oh, that can't be right. This can't be right. You know, you can, you can think what you want, but, and, and for me, I just look at this and yeah, they're not going to make the playoffs and they might end up being the second worst team in the entire league. But what was the point at the start of this season? The point was, okay, everything else is gone. The team has been handed with really, if you look, Brandon, at, you know, when they moved, uh, when they moved Pajot last year and then uh, didn't re-sign Borvietsky and he went to free agency, that's when they handed the torch to the young guys. That's when the team was handed to Brady, Kachuk, and Shabbat. The, the torch, that's when it happened. So now what do they do with it? Well, you got to grow the flame. That, that's, that's what you do in any of these kinds of rebuilds. So for me, if any of the, if any of the young core regressed or just didn't get any better, then I would question whether this season – uh, the franchise got out of it what they hoped and expected to get out of it. But I, I don't think that's happened. And there's been additions, you know, where they, they said they were going to, and some they didn't happen as fast as some people wanted, but they said they were going to add guys as the season went on. And they did. Formanton came in and, you know, they, they've added guys. Brandstrom has been up and down. Um, and, you know, that's because his play has been up and down, in, in my opinion. Right. Um, but they're going where they said they wanted to go. And, um to me, again, it's it's been a productive season because the most important players going forward made important progress this year mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. And, and with a young team, it, it's tough to know what to expect. And that's before you throw the whole COVID wrinkle into everything. Uh, has there been anything or anyone even that's surprised you this year? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a really good question. I think probably the guy that has surprised me uh, the most um, – is probably Batherson, you know, because so much, there's so much focus on Brady Kachuk and he's gotten better, but I didn't think he'd get worse. You know what I mean? It's what, uh, for me, these kinds of questions are, what was your expectation? And going into the season, I didn't know. I, I, I started the season wondering, is this going to be the same kind of start this year for Batherson than it was last year where he came up, comes up, has a good camp, looks good, starts the season. And then you realize after 10 or 15 games, he's really not ready for this. You know, he's really, he's, he's not ready to be an everyday NHLer. And then he got sent down. And so this year, that was kind of my, not my expectation, but my question, is this season going to be different for him than last season was? And, you know, for me, he's been excellent. You know, I think he's a far more mature player than I thought he would be at this stage of his career. I love the way he thinks the game. 
Um, and I think he's going to be a very, very good player for a very, very long time. And for me, that's a surprise because I think back to the beginning of the season and I was at that time not wondering whether I thought he was going to be a really good player for a long time. I was still thinking whether he's going to be in the NHL this year. So I, I think for me, Batherson would be my guy where I would say that was maybe not the biggest surprise, but the most question marks that I had around of the younger guys. Mm-hmm. His, his emergence as a top six winger has like been really something to watch. I mean, not looking at a place on a top line or even on the second line in the NHL is it's really impressive. And you talked a little bit about how the torch was passed to the guys like Brady Kachuk and Thomas Shabbat. Um, I'm going to throw a hard ball at you pretty quickly. Uh, who's the captain of this team next year? If it were me selecting, it would be Brady Kachuk. I just think because he's the emotional leader of this team. I think you'd, uh, you know, it, w- it wouldn't be, uh, we've talked about this many times in our, in our own little discussions, and it's not like it's a snap decision where I just, you know, that's the automatic one. Thought long and hard because uh, Thomas Shabbat is the best player on this team mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, could be for a very long time. Um, but Brady really, I think, is the emotional leader of this team. Uh, and he's the guy that, uh, you know, to, to quote the coach, he's the guy that pulls guys into the battle most nights. So <laughs> I think from a marketing standpoint, from a player in the locker room standpoint, from a whole bunch of different standpoints, I think he's a natural leader. He already does the things that leaders do. And I think, like I said, I think he's the emotional leader of this team. But, you know, I'm not the one selecting and, uh, you know, uh, we'll see where they finally go with this. I don't think they can give him the captaincy, to be honest with you, though, unless he signs a long term. Oh, of course. Yeah. He's up this year, so you wonder if uh, it's going to end up being a bridge deal or a longer team deal, like the eight-year deal that Shabbat signed. So, mm-hmm. I think if Brady signs, if Brady signs an eight-year deal, uh, an eight-year extension, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they named him the captain of the press conference. And that's nothing against Thomas Shabbat, but I, I just think that he's probably the emotional leader of this team. Yeah, he he's such a unicorn. I mean, he's got such this this crazy genesis of skill and grit but also leadership and personality like that shimmy he's doing now after he scores like it's hilarious and it it, and it's so good and it's so emblematic of him as a player um one thing i'm curious about is as someone who saw mark stone's career from the beginning of his tenure in ottawa to the end um do you see any similarities there because not to go off on too much of a tangent but I kind of see it at times. And there was a play, I don't know if you remember it from the last Winnipeg game where Brady was forechecking in. I think it was Derek Forbert and the puck got caught in his feet and he managed to kick it, drag it forward onto his stick and go in on a breakaway and almost score. Um, do you see any kind of similarities between those two guys? Uh, yeah. In a, in a couple of ways, compete level. Number one, uh, both guys just compete like mad and, you know, uh, more for Mark, more for stone. Um, his compete and his hockey IQ and his anticipation uh, are what make up for the fact that he's not a very good skater. And he's never been a very good skater. In junior, he was a bad skater. Oh, yeah. And that's why, you know, he was drafted as low as he was for an IQ and skill level as high as he was. People say, well, how did he get drafted that low? Well, it's because there's a lot of concerns about his skating. The thing is that there's no wasted motion with him. He's still not a great skater, but he gets to where he needs to go because he can see it. He can anticipate it. And Brady has some of those qualities, but the anticipation uh, and the uh, and the the, the hand skills, uh, Stone is is better than Brady. But Brady, as far as tenacity and willing to take abuse to make a play, and just the fight that he has in him, uh, sets Brady apart. But uh, in in some ways, uh, the two are the same in that neither one of them is a particularly beautiful skater, but both of them are off the charts as far as competitiveness goes. And so, in those two ways, uh, they have similarities for sure. Mm-hmm. 
I think the one thing that people came into the season with um, really curious about, and now it's become the biggest hot button issue on the team is goaltending. Uh, Matt Murray has like, we can just be honest, has not lived up to his contract and for which he's been heavily criticized and, and rightfully so. Where do you see the future going in net? And I know you're not, you know, out there on the ice with the team every day and seeing the impact that a guy like Zach Burke has on Matt Murray. But do you think this is an issue that can be fixed? Uh, well, fixed is a relative term. You know, there's going to be somebody playing net tomorrow. There's going to be somebody playing net every game, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, the next Martin Brodeur uh, is left to be seen. Uh, I think with with the way the thing is structured right now, that Matt Murray is going to be the number one goaltender. So they've got to do everything they can to get his game where he and they want it to be. Uh, they've got too much money invested and uh, he's the number one guy. I think for me, the big question is going to be going forward. Number one, can they get him to where they need him to be? Uh, that's a huge question. It goes without saying. But I think in the immediate future, I, I think where they line up, they have the, the Sanders have an embarrassment of riches in prospects. But prospects don't mean anything until you can turn that into a professional that you can count on. Uh, but you look at you know their lineup of goaltenders and who they have. I think the biggest question for next year is is not Matt Murray going to be the number one goalie. I think he absolutely is. Um, but the question is who's going to be number two. You know, Marcus Hogberg has had a very, very bad season at some times. And other times you go, well, there's the guy you thought was going to be the next guy. You know, there he is. And you, but there can't be the big gaps between those two things, because what happens with those gaps is when when he's not playing well or then gets injured and he's left the impression in the mind that, you know, he hasn't played well, even though he actually played two really good games before he got injured. Um but then when you see how good Decord is before he gets injured, and then you see Gustafson come in and play a couple of great games. And then just because they've run out of guys, you know, they pick up Forsberg off, off waivers and he comes in and he plays great. Well, now you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, well, Hogberg was our guy, but you know what? These other guys, these options are pretty good. And, you know, Mandelizzi, he's up here now. And for Belleville, he's playing in the same building and we get to see him and, and he's pretty good. And, we signed Matt Sogard, who's in Denmark right now, playing his first year of pro hockey in Denmark, and he's taken his team to the semifinals. And, you know, Merrill Lane and the guy they just drafted this year in Finland, um, he's playing U20 in Finland, and he's just 19. He's not coming over anytime soon. But if you look at that depth, you go, well, he's one of the best goaltenders in the Finnish U20 league. Well, you have lots behind there. So you know, I, I think the bigger question is not going to be about Matt Murray next year, because that's that's a, that's a fait accompli. He's number one, no matter what. It, it would be a catastrophe if he wasn't number one. But the, I think the bigger question is, who's going to be number two? And, and the third question and all that, it's going to be hard to satisfy the wants and wishes of that many top flight goalies if all these goalies keep progressing at this rate because all of them have had very good results. Mm -hmm. You can't keep them all happy. And, but that is a great treasure trove to have if you need to move some out to create space or to satisfy other guys. So a good problem to have. But I think for me, anyway, the, the biggest question next year is not, is Matt Murray number one? My question is, who's number two? Right. And the Marcus Hogberg thing is really interesting because we're seeing now, even that he's healthy, it, it seems like he's been bumped down to the third goaltender role. Uh, and Anton Forsberg has been taking over the backup duties for Matt Murray, at least in practice. And Forsberg got the starts on the weekend uh, that we thought probably were going to go to Hogberg. Um do you have any sense as to why DJ Smith has, has elevated Forsberg over Hogberg? And do you think this is the end for Marcus Hogberg in Ottawa? Um, I don't know what the coach, you know, the, the coach is going to keep his thoughts on that to himself. But, you know, if you look at history and you just look at common sense within the NHL, any kind of a head coaching decision about goaltending, 
um, is always made in conjunction with the goaltending coach, number one. But number two, um, it, it almost always comes down to confidence. You know, it, it comes down to does the coach have the confidence that he's the guy? Um, and I would suggest that, you know, the other, the other thing that comes into play at this time of year, I think it was about a week and a half ago, maybe, um, yeah, maybe a week and a half ago, um, DJ Smith said on, on the Zoom call with the media, <clears throat> with all the positions from here on in, it's going to be based on who plays the hardest and who competes. That's the way it's going to be to the finish line. Um, that's who's going to play. And Forsberg has played well, had good results and played hard. So you, you can't make that statement to your team and then pick and choose which guys you assign that to. So, you know, you can look organizationally and say, well, you know, Hogberg was supposed to be the number two guy. He's worked to get him back in his, himself back healthy again. Why doesn't he just go back in? Well, because the coach has already said whoever plays hard, plays well and competes and gets results stays in. Well, Forsberg has. So, you know what I mean? Like, so you're, you're always caught between that yin and the yang. But, you know, at the end of the day, <clears throat> at the end of the day, a coach is going to select guys he thinks gives him the best chance to win because he's not concerned. The general manager is the one who worries about a year down the road, a week down the road, two years down the road. That's his forte, organizational questions. The coach, coaches live in today. They live in, can I win today? And if the coach thinks that Forsberg gives him a better chance to win than Hogberg, Forsberg will play. And, you know, us out here, we can have these conversations about where this guy was drafted, where they got this, do they really, those are organizational debates, but the coach, coaches by and large, on their, I, I said this to somebody else, you know, um, when we were having a conversation about, about Brandstrom, you know, saying, well, you know, they got to, they got to get him in because he was the major part of the stone deal. And it's going to be embarrassing. This guy doesn't turn out to be, I said, you know, hold on. I said, well, all that might be true from an organizational standpoint up here. If you get to the coach on game day, I've been in the offices, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a situation where I can go in there when invited in by the coaches. I've seen the dry boards on the wall. They don't list their team with a thing beside it that says how much he makes or where he was drafted or who he got traded for. None of that stuff exists in the coaches world. They don't care. They, they do not care how high now a general manager might director of player personnel might, maybe they do in the bigger scheme, but for the coach on game day, none of that stuff is on his dry board. That, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. So in the case of Hogberg and Forsberg, the coach doesn't care if Forsberg came through a draft, through a trade, through waivers, doesn't care. Right. Just who wins for me tonight? And it appears to me that right now he thinks that he has a better chance to win with Murray or Forsberg, and his third choice is Hogberg. Otherwise, mm -hmm. Hogberg would be playing. Right. So Murray probably came in with the most in the way of expectations at the beginning of the season, but the most hype definitely went to Tim Stutzla, of course. Uh, in your time covering the team, you've seen guys come through like Marion Hossa and Martin Havlat and Eric Carlson. I, I know it's early, but how would you rank Stutzla's rookie season uh, compared to those guys and in terms of potential? And is there a comparison to guys like Havlat or Hossa, or is he a different type of player? He's a little bit different type of player. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he's going to be as physically challenging uh, to the opposition as Marion was, but in a lot of ways, he reminds me of Marion Hosa more than the other guys with his release and his puck skills. And, um, but you know, he's, he's about the same, you know, uh, he played really well when he started and now, uh, and, and I realize people want to give, you know, give him these superhuman uh, traits, uh, but he's hit a wall. Uh, he's, he's not as good a player. He's never played this many games in a row against this good a competition. Um, 
he's used to playing in leagues that when you get a stick in the mouth, a penalty is called and he's got to get used to just playing on because mm-hmm. the officials are getting tired of the amount of time that he's complaining about not getting calls. He's got to learn that's NHL officiating. It's not fair, but that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, things that have worked for him at the junior level are not working anymore and he's got to find ways around it. And he will. And he will. This is part of the thing. But there's no question to me that he's hit a wall. He has not been nearly as good in the first half, uh, the second half of his season as he was in the first half of his season. But people have to remember that's normal. That That's that's normal. Common thing with rookies, right? Like, yeah, you know, like people have to look again and, and, and think about how many in, in actuality, you know, how many teenagers actually play in the NHL. You know, people talk about they'll whip out a list of all the teenagers who played and been successful. And I always say, yeah, there's always a list. You can point to guys who were teenagers and had success. I can bring out a list that's 10 times longer of teenagers who played that were complete failures. Right. You know, like the number of teenagers that can survive in this game as teenagers is actually a very, very small number. The fact that he's a functioning, good teenager in the NHL in his rookie season is fantastic. Even though he's not lighting it up anymore, mm-hmm. you know, He's, he's fantastic. And, you know, he, 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 I think he's had a very, very good rookie season, even mm-hmm. though his second half hasn't been as good as his first half. To me, I didn't expect that it would be because he's going through what almost every single other teenager goes through. There's a guy in New York playing for the Rangers that was the number one overall uh, pick in the draft. I'm sure he'd love to change statistics with Tim Stutzler right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. That doesn't mean he's a flop. He's a teenager in the national hockey league, you know, and that's just, it's a very normal thing for those very few special players who are good enough to be able to play as a teenager. Yeah. And it's not for a lack of chances with Stutzla even, I mean, you, you can tell there are nights where it looks like he's fatigued, but that night against, uh, you know, last, the last game against Toronto, he was probably their best forward. Like you could make a good argument. That goal was gorgeous. I mean, he should have had another one when he hit the post on Batherson. So, yeah. I mean, you're, I think you're spot on. I think night to night, uh, there is some fatigue, but the fact that he's contributing at all at this point in the season yeah. as a 19 year old is it's incredible, right? That's about as yeah. best you can hope for from a third overall draft pick. And yeah, you know what, you know, Brandon, the other thing is um, he makes some horrific defensive giveaways. <laughs> yes, he does. He, he does. He does. But the, the difference is between him making them and a, and a rookie defenseman making them, gen, by and large, not always, but by and large, he makes them, you know, 90 feet away from his net. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but they're not as costly. Brandstrom or before that, Willanden making those same errors, which they did too often, results in either goals or big chances against. But the thing, the thing is that he's going to learn from those things and get better. And, yeah. and he knows that the guys who are successful in this league have to play some level of defense. Even Ovechkin back checks every now and then. You know what I mean? Like you can't just be an offensive player. And he gets that. And he's not good at that part of the game yet. But he will be. He will get better. He's a very dedicated player. He's going to learn. He's coachable. He's not dumb. He's smart. But those little things that he could get away with in junior, now they're turnovers. And he will learn those things. Yeah, and you, you can't teach skill, which he has an abundance of, but but you can teach the defensive aspect of the game. I'd love to transition towards uh, talking a bit about your broadcast career, and especially with this season in mind, give me some perspective on what a shift it's been for you to start broadcasting in a COVID world. I mean, I can't imagine this is something you ever thought you would encounter in your career. So, so what's the adjustment been like? And I guess the one thing I'm really curious to know is, Without fans, um, 
you know, so many great broadcast moments and calls are are contingent upon a raucous crowd reaction, yeah. which you've seen many of in your in your time covering the Senators. Has that adjustment been difficult without the fans? Do you find you kind of have to manufacture your own energy a little bit? Um, not, not really, because my energy comes from the game, and it's usually in concert with the fans. You know, the fans, you know, you, uh, you get excitement, and your excitement level on the broadcast increases because of the play, uh, and the fans are doing it at the same time as you. You know, I, I don't get excited because of the fans. I get excited at the same time the fans do. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, for me, the way I was brought up in the game broadcasting the game, um, and I still get some people who are annoyed by it, you know, they say, well, how come you get so excited and, uh, you know, for a visitor's goal? Like, uh, you know, I was always taught that, you know, a great play is a great play, no matter who makes it, and no matter what time in the game it is. You know, I've had people say to me, like, that goal was like, it was 6-1. What's, what were you getting all wound up for? Well, a great goal can happen in a 10-to-1 game. You know I mean? The, the score doesn't do, – no, I do play-by-play, play, not period-by-period period or game-by-game. Game. It's play-by-play. Play. And if it's an exciting play, it's an exciting play. And do I wish the fans were there? Absolutely. There's no question to change the environment and the electricity in a building. And from my perspective, um, it affects the players. So if it affects the players, that that's what affects the play-by-play. The play. On a day-to-day -day basis, it makes it more difficult for us to do our jobs. <coughs> Because I think one of the big things, one of the special sauces that, uh, that we bring on, on our TSN 1200 broadcast is something that is um, a privilege for us is in that we get access. You know, um, the things that we know um, are not because we're smarter than other people. It's because we have access to them. And, um, you know, I, I, I see sometimes where people think that, you know, sometimes, uh, for example, I'm being condescending because I'm talking down to someone because I'm saying something they don't know. Well, I'm not saying it because they don't have the ability to know it. It's they don't have the opportunity to know it. And so one of the things we can't bring to the broadcast is all the great little gems and stories about players, coaches, situations that we normally would have because when you're in the hotel waiting for a cab, one of the players walks up and you chit chat for five minutes about what's going on. And then whatever you're talking about, you can bring that story to the air. Or, you know, um, a player gets injured, but you're walking to your car after the game and you see him limping with a with a boot on his right foot. Well, you know, well, and it looks like something's pretty, you know, you, you know when you can see these things. And there's relationships. A lot of things that we know are because players and coaches and managers and scouts, uh, we're around them all the time and they get to know us and they get to know, um, you know, that we're trustworthy, that things that, can and should be talked about, can be, but things that really shouldn't, that are personal or private or, you know, not everything should be broadcast. Not everything should be reported on. Like, I, I don't think you in your personal life would want every part of your life broadcast. So I think the players appreciate some of the guys, some of the guys that are, you know, around the team quite a bit, knowing which ones are which. And um, we can't bring that to the air during COVID. You know, our, our broadcasts, I still think we do a very good broadcast. Uh, I don't mind bragging about what we do on our station and on the network, but it's not as good as it could be because calling the game off monitor is not the same as doing it live. And most importantly, the stories and the insight and the inside information that we get from being close and being in a situation to have, you know, conversations with people, not having that, the broad, <clears throat> sorry, the broadcast is lesser for it. But the only thing I know is that it can't last forever. And at some point we will get back to, uh, you know, the way it used to be. Uh, but for now, um, it, it is what it is for us and everybody else. It, like in, in, just in simple things like practice, right. getting the lines in practice now is not an easy thing because <laughs> in practice, 
we're required to be up in the press box, mm-hmm. 400 feet away. And the players in practice don't wear numbered jerseys. So the only numbers that they have on are the one inch numbers on their helmet. <laughs> so for me, because it's kind of my job on the TSN 1200 um, Twitter page, um, we all, all of us on the station contribute to that, but any of that stuff from the rink, that's me. Right. And so to get those lines, I'm literally sitting there with binoculars trying to read one inch numbers on a player's head from 400 feet away and discern who he's skating with. So that is very difficult where normally we would be sitting in the stands, 10 rows from the ice with our notepad. And just, there's that guy, you, you can see their face. You don't even know, have to know what number they are. You know who it is. So just those those small everyday things become a lot more difficult when you have to cover practice from 400 feet away and have no contact with the players or coaches. Our only contact is through the Zoom media conferences after games and, and after practices. So, you know, those are the biggest changes and they affect us, but ultimately they affect the fans because I think the uh, the insight intimate stuff that normally we can bring to the broadcast, um, it's very difficult to bring now because there's no contact. Right. And we were talking a little bit before the show about how you found yourself as the play-by-play guy for the Senators. But I mean, from CFRW in Winnipeg to CKSL in London, CFRA in Ottawa, and then to the CFL, that seems like a hard left turn to go from, you know, covering professional football, you know, all the way up to covering professional football and then jumping into hockey. Was that always a goal for you was to be more involved with hockey than anything? Or was it just kind of one of those things that happened organically and then ended up working out? Yeah, it happened organically. Uh, I was very, very happy uh, doing the morning sports on CFRA and being the sports director and doing the play-by-play of the Ottawa Rough Riders. It was the biggest job in town, and uh, I was lucky enough to have it. I I wasn't wanting for anything. I wasn't sending out tapes trying to get another job somewhere else. Um, And I think I may have told you this before, but to be honest with you, I I got into the business by accident. I was offered it. Well, I've never never applied for a job. Right. I've, you know, I think we had that discussion before. So um, I was uh, uh, I was really not in a situation where I was sitting there doing CFL games and thinking, man, I wish I was working in the NHL. I, I was just doing it. I was loving it. And I wasn't really thinking about much more than that. And uh, then when I got the opportunity uh, to switch from football to hockey, um, it was just it was play by play just of a different sport. And you know, being a Canadian kid, um, I grew up loving the CFL and loving the NHL. So I was just kind of turning from one to the other. And I still love the CFL and I still love the NHL. And, you know, and now I'm doing the NHL. The, the reality is from a personal standpoint, obviously working in the NHL um, is the more prestigious job. Nothing against the CFL, but it, but it is, especially in our business, the broadcasting business. For sure. Um, and also from a, you know, just a realistic standpoint, the money is a lot better. You, you know, you, you get paid more if you're calling games in the NHL than the CFL by and large. Um, you know, and you have to take care of your family like in every other job. Um, but I, I, can't, I can't say that uh, it's more exhilarating. I found calling CFL games exhilarating. I, uh, you know, and people ask me, you know, when you're doing, is it, is it more fun when you're doing radio or when you work for Sportsnet or when you work for Hockey Night in Canada? Like, is it, and I said, for me doing the play-by-play, it's all pretty much the same. You know, it's just, you're, you're doing pretty much the same job just with a different audience. Probably the biggest difference is like, you know, I, I worked for Hockey Night in Canada for 15 years and somebody said to me once, they said, so in the whole 15 years, you've never realized that like on a Saturday night, there's millions of people listening to you. And I said, no, it doesn't change. The number of people listening or watching doesn't really change how you call the game or what you, you know, you just, 
that's what you're doing. You try to do the best job you can. You try to do a good show and then you move on to the next one, you know? So I think a lot of those things that people think would make them nervous or make them think sometimes those come into play for some guys, but sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And over time you've, you've developed your own distinct calls and your, your kind of trademark lines, like the scramble call and oh my heavens. And I'm curious as someone who has a huge affinity for play-by-play, I mean, you know, my best memories are listening to guys like yourself and, and Doc Emmerich, you know, like I love that aspect of the game. How does that come about? Like, is it a conscious effort where you kind of come, come up with these own little trademarks or is it something that happens organically? Uh, in my case, it happens organically. I, I have never pre-scripted a call. You know, to be honest with you, I'm not good enough at this that if something happened, I could grab a cue card and read it. Like, I'm, I'm not that quick. I couldn't do it. So anything that I do, anything that I've done um, has been just something that came out um, like w- with the scramble, to be honest with you, uh, when I covered football, that was exactly the same way that I called a fumble. So to me, one just kind of <laughs> I love together, that. Right? I just, it became, a sc- and, and to be honest with you, I've had people say to me, well, you don't do it as often as you used to. And I, and I tell them, I said, there's no internal switch that I say, I'm not going to do that anymore. But you have to remember early on when I did it a lot, I did it a lot because the team was terrible and there were a lot of scrambles, you know, <laughs> the team got better. There were fewer of them. You know what I mean? So uh, it's not that I consciously do or don't say anything or choose a slogan. I, you know, I, I have a, I have a friend in the business and he has a ton of them and he doesn't make any, he doesn't try to hide it. He has them written down and he rotates them and actually has reached out to fans over the years and said, if you have good ones, just send them in to me, and if I like them, I'll use them. And I'm talking about Mike Lang in Pittsburgh, you know. And I figured, Mike, <laughs> I guessed. <laughs> Mike, Mike has some great ones, but he does pre-plan, which, you know, the going to Elvis, Mama with the Hacksaw, the, you know, the whole Elvis, all, all the stuff that he does, he's got them on carts. I'm not good enough that I could find the card or, or no, like, and I don't know really how you, in calling, you know, a Drake Batherson full-speed backhand, I don't know at real time how you come up with something off a card. Like I said, I couldn't reach for it to read it fast enough. So all the things that I say, whatever it is, good or bad, um, it's just organic. It just comes out. It's just it's what you're thinking. Your uh, your mind is your greatest implement doing this job. People think it's your voice. It's not. It's your mind. And uh, you know, and I, I I tell people all the time, young broadcasters like yourself. I, I said, be early and be yourself. You know, be ready to work. Uh, be early. And so you had lots of time to prepare anything else you didn't during the afternoon and be yourself. So often young broadcasters, when they come into the game, are trying to sound like someone that they admire growing up, right. which is flattering. But at some point, you got to be yourself. Otherwise, can people people now are media savvy. Mm. Uh, they will discover after a time that you don't sound like that's really you. So just be really you. Like with, with Gordon and I, um, you know, if people are wondering when they hear us on the air and hear how stupid we are sometimes how, how, when we goof around and do stuff that's not even hockey related at all. One thing I can say is, is that none of it's fake. We, that's, that's the way we are in real life. We are, we are true to ourselves. And so uh, we might not be very good, uh, but we are who we are. We're not, uh, we're not trying to be somebody else. And I'm not sure who would want to try to be like us. I don't think you're going to find many people that say you two aren't that good, but I mean, yeah, I think that connection with Gord is something that's really cool because I mean, hell, I was walking the dog a little while ago, listening to one of the games and you guys just started talking about mustard in the middle of the play. And I, I thought it was hilarious. You know, I guess there's, 
Yeah, that is important. <laughs> there was kind of a lull in the play. So, you know, and it's just, it's those little things that kind of keep things entertaining. And, and you, you know, across a channel and Sportsnet and, and wherever, right? Like you've had, or, sorry, Hawking and Canada, not Sportsnet. Um, you've had a ton of different partners like Denny Potvin, Greg Millen, but you and Gord seem to have a different type of connection. Like, talk to me a little bit about that. What makes you two work so well together? I don't know. That's a really good question. We've known each other for a very, very long time. Um, you know, Gord worked on the football broadcast back when I was doing the play-by-play. He was uh, doing sidelines and and the halftime show, you know, so we worked together on football before we ever worked together on hockey. And uh, we've just known each other for a very long time. We know each other's personalities very well. Uh, we're very good friends out of the booth. So I think that makes a difference. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, um, the other guys that I've worked with have all been on TV. And to be honest with you, there's less time in TV um, to have your relationship shine through because in radio, we are deciding what the content is as we go. And if we decide to go off on a tangent, well, usually it's me going off on a tangent and I force Gord to follow me whether he wants to or not. Um, but in TV, um, in, a, in a 15 or 20 second span where you might want to go off in a certain direction that's maybe, you know, kind of fun, but it has nothing to do with the game. And it's just some, you know, friendly banter. A producer's in, you're saying, okay, the video's coming up right now, three, two. So now you got to move on to whatever the, you know. So somebody else in TV is controlling uh, the airtime, not you. In radio, that's not the case. We have we have more time to connect with each other. And, and I believe we have more time uh, to connect with the fans and the listeners. You know, if, if you ask people, if you ask people by and large um, what they want out of a radio broadcast, the number one thing they say, by and large, before anything else, is fun. They want to have fun. And people most often have fun if you're having fun. And so I always tell young broadcasters, don't be scared to laugh. Don't be scared to talk about something for a couple of seconds that isn't related to the game. You know, it's not a science project. It, it's, it's not parliament. It's sports. It's supposed to be fun. You know, years, years ago, when we first started as a radio station, being a sports radio station, uh, they dug up all the research that was being done at the time about sports talk radio and sports play-by-play. -play. And there's always going to be about 5% of the people who call a sports radio station to complain. And those 5% are going to be the ones who say, stick to sports. What are you talking about that stuff for? Quit goofing around. Call the game. Or with sports, you know, with, with the talk shows. Uh, well, why, why weren't you talking about this? Why, how come you were talking about the Price is Right? What are you doing? It's a sports talk show. Smarten up. The thing is that you can't make a living in the sports radio business um, trying to program your station for that 5%. Because what some of these studies, and I found a focus group really interesting once, one of the companies, this was years ago, did a focus group where they actually had, I think, five or six guys who said that they were hardcore sports fans, hardcore, and that's the way they wanted it. And they put them down in a rec room, put a game, was a football game, put them on TV, and they just mic'd the room. So these are the hardcore guys and they talk about the game and the players and the stats and this and that and the play-by-play -play guys and the stadium and this. And also they talked about cars and mortgages and their wives and girlfriends and their house and their kids and the stroller and their neighbor. And when they played it back from, they realized, those guys realized that while they like to think they're hardcore sports guys and they want the broadcast to be nothing but sports, they don't even talk about nothing but sports when they're together. They talk about a whole host of different real life things that come into your conversations while you're enjoying sports. So when Gordon and I kind of veer off sometimes for a time that isn't related directly to what's happening on the ice, if usually when nothing is happening on the ice, 
It's because we're just trying to be natural and have fun and talk about things that are relevant to anybody who would be listening, whether you're a sports fiend or not. And the other reality is that hardcore 5%, you're never going to be able to satisfy them. The, the, the broadcast is never going to be hardcore enough for them. You're never going to repeat their opinions. And they think everyone's opinion is wrong unless it mirrors theirs. So you can't program a radio station or a TV station based on trying to appease that hardcore 5%. You have to remember the other 95% is the thing that makes you money and makes you solvent as a business. So, you know, when people ask about Gordon and I, we are different in the way we do it because we don't endeavor to be hardcore 99% of the time. We endeavor to be who we are and we are more ourselves than we are somebody else's depiction of what they think a broadcast is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. What went into the decision to transition to the radio aspect full time? I mean, you're a guy who's done broadcasts and TV for so long. I mean, Hockey Night in Canada, like that's it doesn't get any bigger than that. Right. So so what made you decide that it was time to step solely into the radio sphere? For me, it was a lifestyle thing. I was very, very fortunate in that I had a choice. And, you know, not many people in our business nowadays uh, get to have a choice. Uh, I was very fortunate that I had a choice. Uh, my kids were still in school at the time. And at the time of the changeover of the rights here, when Sportsnet had the rights and I was doing half radio and half uh, regional stuff and working for Hockey Night in Canada, the rights changed to TSN. So TSN on TV, even though I worked for TSN radio, worked for the same company, they didn't need me. What they had was they had five play-by-play -play guys, but they no longer had national rights anymore. So they didn't have enough work for the guys they already had under contract that they had to pay. So they didn't need me. At the same time, the national rights were going to Rogers and Hockey Night in Canada. So what Rogers offered me to stay was working Hockey Night in Canada on Saturdays and do the Montreal package, which was they owned the regional rights for Montreal. So I would have gone from doing the regional Ottawa broadcast to doing the regional Montreal broadcast. For me, the problem that I had was um, if doing the Montreal broadcast, it meant that I had virtually no home games. I think... My memory might be wrong, but I think I think the first mock schedule that they sent me was uh, I had three games in Ottawa the entire season. The rest of the time I would be on the road because my technically my home games would have been in Montreal and my road games would have been wherever Montreal is. And working Saturday nights on Hockey Night in Canada, I, I most often didn't do Ottawa games on Hockey Night. If you remember back when I was working on Hockey Night, they'd send me to Calgary or Minnesota right. one more. And I think on that Again, I'm, I might be recollecting wrong, but I think on that first mock schedule, I think only two of the Saturday night hockey night games that I was going to be doing were in Ottawa. All the rest were somewhere else. So I had two kids in school at the time, and I just looked at it and said, you know, I can, I, I, I could do, um, I had an offer, obviously, from radio to continue doing it. I didn't need, I already had it, you know, and just do all radio, or do I take the, the TV job and never be home? And can I really have a family life if I'm never at home? And I don't mean just not, you know, at the rink, I mean, not in the city. And so for me, it was, it was really um, for the most part, a, a lifestyle decision. You know um, I had, I had been on hockey night for 15 years and uh, I loved it and enjoyed it. And I'd worked for Rogers, loved it and enjoyed it. I'd worked for TSN, loved it and enjoyed it, you know? Um, but for me, it wasn't because I was mad at somebody or, angry or didn't get what I wanted. It was simply a lifestyle decision. And uh, the time at the time, the guy that uh, was I was uh, talking with, um, who wouldn't have been my boss, but he was the guy who was in charge of doing all the contracts, 
the executive producer for at that time Rogers as they were launching this team, uh, um, this, this whole thing. Um, and uh, his name was Gord. And uh, Gord said to me after I, I called him and told him, listen, I, I, I really appreciate the offer. Um, it's a great offer. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I'm, I'm going to turn it down. I'm going to take the radio deal. And, and his name is Gord Cutler. And uh, Gord said, you know what, Dean? He said, now that you explain to me why, he said, I understand. He said, I totally understand. Um, we're going to have to make some, you know, alterations because we kind of expected that you'd be, uh, but he said, I get it. And he was really good. He was really good about it. You know, Gord was really good about the fact that um, he understood why I was making that decision, but I, I understand that uh, he was a little bit surprised because let's face it. Most, most people don't turn down TV to do radio. And that's not a, doesn't happen a lot. And most of the time, to be honest with you, most people assume that I got fired because they, they think that if you're not doing TV anymore and you're doing radio, it's because you got fired from TV. So when people find out that it was a choice I made, they go, what? And I go, well, you know, for me, it fit. And our station, TSN 1200, they've treated me so well. It's been, I haven't, I haven't, put it this way. I have never regretted this decision. It's been, it's been so fun. It's been gratifying professionally. I'm fulfilled by it. I don't miss doing TV. I don't miss putting on makeup. I, you know, so um, for me in my personal situation, it's, it's ended up great. And I, I'm fully aware of how fortunate I was to be able to get to make a choice. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of how the whole transition worked. It was, it was really more about, uh, about lifestyle than anything else. Mm-hmm. I talked a little bit earlier about those great broadcast moments, and I'm a huge fan of those iconic play-by-play calls that are attached to these, you know, these all-time greatest goals. Your call of Jason Spezza's overtime winner against the Habs when he danced through the whole team, I think it was 2006, uh, just ridiculous. And, um, you know, that's one. your call is one of the things that makes that such a legendary moment. Um, do you have a favorite one of those, uh, like a favorite moment where you feel like you just crushed it in terms of the play-by-play call? Oh boy, that's a good question. You know what? I don't know because to be honest with you, I don't really remember very many of them. Like when I, when I hear them again, when somebody plays me, oh, I go, oh yeah, I, I remember that. I, I remember that. Um, uh, but there's some that I remember and I don't remember what I said and I don't remember the call, um, but I remember the Alfredson goal in Buffalo to send them on to the, and one of the reasons that I remember that was I remember doing it, Gordon and I doing that, uh, that game. Uh, but also I remember it because I got paid by a company because they wanted to put it in key chains, the audio and key chains in these mugs. And That's so they amazing. Had royalty. So I remember that because I made money off. I go, oh, these guys called me out of the blue. I said, yeah, yeah, sure. If you're sending me checks, go ahead and use it. <laughs> I, I remember that. To be honest with you, I remember, I remember a call that I did on Hockey Night in Canada in Winnipeg an awful lot when we go to Tampa because they play it all the time. I was doing the Hockey Night in Canada game in Winnipeg when Stamco scored his 60th. Oh, right. So yeah. That was the only broadcast of that game. Tampa didn't broadcast the game. The only TV broadcast of the game was our hockey night broadcast. And I was the guy calling it. So when we're in Tampa and they always replay that Stamco 60th goal, it's always me. And I go, oh, yeah. But to be honest with you, probably the, the, one, the one thing that um, has always stuck with me uh, wasn't even a goal call. We, uh, I was doing a sports net game uh, with Greg Millen. Uh, for Gretzky's last game in Canada, which was here. In right. Canada. Yeah. And so that night we were the ones, cause I don't, they, they changed how they do it. But that night, the way it worked was they rotated different broadcast crews would pick the stars of the game. So that night we were the broadcast crew that was picking the stars. So with three minutes left to go in the game, 
the producer always calls up and says, so who are you guys thinking? And you can change them, but they still want to start getting a list. And so we started talking about it, you know, during the last commercial break. And, and we had settled in on three guys. I forget who it was. And then with about a minute to play in the game, it just dawned on me that this would be ridiculous. This would be a joke. You know, who is going to want to come out? So I just pressed the talk back button. And I said to the producer, I said, one star, that's all. I said, Wayne Gretzky, one, two, and three, one star. That's it. It's ridiculous to bring anybody else out. It's just ridiculous. And so that's what ended up happening is that they decided to scrap the three stars and just have three stars, all Wayne Gretzky, which for that night was completely appropriate. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what, that's, that's a decision. You know, I talked with Millsy at the time, you know, he's my color guy. And he said, yeah, absolutely. yeah, exactly. And I just remember thinking after the game, you know what, it would have been so easy just to go through the normal motions of what we normally do to pick three stars. And I'm just glad that it dawned on us that that was not appropriate at that time. And it's funny later on, people are going, well, that's, that's a fantastic thing by the team to just do three, just do one star. Well, the team didn't do it. We did. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But it was a, one of those things where you're, you're glad that the, right, that the right choice came to you at the right time and you followed your, your instincts on doing that because that never happens. Eh? It's sponsored. There's supposed to be three stars. Right. You're not supposed to deviate from that. So, but let's be honest now, looking back on it, two other guys skating up before Gretzky would have seemed ridiculous. Yeah. So, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken... If I'm not mistaken, Ottawa won that game too, right? So I don't even know. I don't remember. <laughs> I, I feel like they did. So play-by-play, I got to be honest with you. With play-by, once I say it, it's gone. If somebody brings it back, but like lots of times, you know, the newspaper guys are put in such difficult situations um, as far as deadlines go that sometimes they're they're writing in the third period. They got to have their head down, and sometimes they can't watch the game as closely as, as they'd like to. So there's lots of times where somebody, one of the newspaper guys, you know, not this year, but will pop because they can't come in, but normally they'll pop up in the booth and, you know, frantic. And who passed the puck from the corner that ended up being that goal? And I go, I don't know. And they said, you just called it. I said, once I say it, it's, I, I don't know, Gord, do you? And Gord will tell them, oh, was this from there? But for me, to be honest with you, once I say it, a lot of it's just gone. I don't like, I, I my brain moves on to whatever the next thing is. So I don't have a great recollection. And so I'm kind of like you, when I, when I hear one of those calls on the radio or on a promo for something, I go, oh yeah, I remember that one. That was really good. Yeah. That was a good play. But I, I don't rate my own calls. To be honest with you, I don't listen to my own. I don't like the sound of my own voice. Right. When I hear, when I hear one of my calls, I always find the things that I don't like about it. I don't like hearing myself. So I never listen unless it's like it's played somewhere. And again, to me, it brings me back to the play, not my call of it, you know? Yeah. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but on the Alfredson overtime goal, I think what was you said, 10 little words everyone's been waiting to hear, the Ottawa Senators are going to the Stanley Cup final. I think that was it, right? Do you know? I? <laughs> yeah. I think have, no, I think that might have been Gord. Oh, was it really? I might. I don't know. Well, again, yeah. I don't know. It was a long time. Yeah, I mean, even for me, that's a long time ago. <laughs> but uh... I can't remember. I just, uh, you know, for for me, I think a lot a lot of it has to do with you know the impact that it has on the fans because mm-hmm. they're who we all work for. Yeah, and I'm not trying to you know ingratiate myself here, but you know, like I live here. I you know my uh, my kids are here. Like my like uh, this is where I live. This is my town. And so the things that move my town are the things that move me. You know, mm-hmm. still when people ask me, you know, the, the biggest, most important, greatest game uh, that I've ever called. To me, it's always the same answer. Game one. 
That's the day the baby was born. There's right. never going to be a bigger game. And people go, well, you mean like when they went to the Stanley Cup final, that was, I said, those are big games. But I said, you can't have any of those until the baby's born. So for me, forever, the biggest, most important game, the one I remember most vividly is game one. Mm-hmm. Is you know, that first night when finally, you know, this rocket has left the pad. You, right. you can't get that twice. And so, and, and I remember that game not for each individual play. I can, bar- I, I can barely remember the plays. I remember how wound people were, how after the game, the fans were just, you know, and it was all those emotions tie us all together. All those emotions are what connect us, not mm-hmm. each individual play or this shot or that shot. Those are great recollections, but it's that emotion that ties us all together. And that's, that's what I love. That's the stuff that I love. And quite frankly, that's the stuff that I miss the most during this pandemic is, you know, the, the people who love this and the people yeah. who are driven by it, you know, we don't get to be in touch with them anymore. We don't get to see them, don't get to watch them, don't get to hear them. And that's mm-hmm. that's the part that's most disappointing. Yeah. I, I was chatting with Brian Fraser, who of course recently passed away. And, and, w- and we were talking back in December about, you know, our favorite memories as fans of the team. And even he said, you know, he was a huge fan of, of those great broadcast moments. So, so, you know, intertwined with the action on the ice, um, it is those moments that make being a fan such a fantastic experience and, and not even just a fan of one team or another, but, but sports in general. And, and you've been fortunate to cover all of Ottawa's greatest moments, um, you know, 2003, 2006, 2007, 2017. I'm wondering whether it was a run or whether it was a specific moment, what's the most fun you've had covering an iteration of the team? I think as far as a stretch goes, you know, where you talk about not a game, but a stretch, it would be the final in 07 um, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, you know, the realization when, you know, when Alfredson scored that goal, the realization that this thing you've seen, heard about, talked about, your friends who broadcasted a final have told you what it's like to do, uh, to do the final, you're going to do it. You're, you're getting up to the top of that water slide and you're going to get on it soon enough. Uh, and the final is different. Uh, from anything else in this in the game, uh, not just the fact that it's the final, but the way it's run. You know, the league the league runs everything. The teams they just show up and make their players available for interviews. But it's even the league people that come and get them. It's not the Ottawa PR people. Like they go with them, but like everything is run by the league. Everything is staged. Everything, everything. And so, just the way the day uh, practice day operates is completely different. So it's all new. It's all exciting, and everybody's wound up. And there's tons of emotion, both good and bad. Um, but that's probably the, uh, the the most fun time, the most fun week, uh, or ten days, or you know whatever that the, the span was when you get through the whole thing, um, because you've you've come to the point of everything. You know the point of this game for all the players and the people and the coaches uh, is the final, and the point of the fans is hoping your team wins in that final. And it's uh, I, I I think I would say probably that would be the thing where it was the, the funnest time for me professionally. It breaks my damn heart still to this day. <laughs> I mean, I, and I know as a broadcaster, you kind of have to keep arms an arm's length distance from the players in the sense that you can't outwardly root for the guys and root for the team. Um, but, you know, for a team that's known nothing but heartbreak in their past, in their almost 30 years of existence now, is there a group where you go, damn, I really wanted those guys to get it done. Like whether, like I said, 2003, 2007, 2017, like, is there one that kind of still you feel bad for those guys and think, oh, like that was the year for those guys? I think probably for me, uh, you know, the year, well, the year uh, when Hasek went down and oh, yeah. never got back. And, you know, Ray Emery was put in the situation as a 23-year-old. He had to carry a team to the Stanley Cup final. And I, I think that uh, that was 
probably the one because you could see how badly the teammates wanted, and not that they didn't want Ray, but they knew Ray was 23 years old. And Hashik was brought in there to be a Stanley Cup goaltender. And to be frank with you, you know, between us and everybody else watching, <laughs> there were players that were upset because they didn't think Dominic was really trying to get back. That yeah. He didn't really care. And, um, you know, um, there's, there's confidences that I can't um, break. Of course. Today, but um, there, are, there are players who truly believe that he could have played and just didn't want to. And that broke their hearts because they thought that took away their chance. Yeah. Even if he didn't care, they did. And so, you know, that that's probably the one where um, I felt so uh, I felt I felt for the players because they were good enough. Mm-hmm. They were enough to have a real shot at it. And uh, that that didn't help. But you know what? For me, um, maybe we would be different if we were like the American broadcasters and we were employed by the team. Then you're right. You know, you're part of the. You know, but for us, when people ask me all the time, you know, because you get it all the time. Some people, it's funny. Some people think, you know, you're a bootlicking homer and you're just, you know, and other people think you're too hard on the home team. Why are you being so hard on them? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of funny. Um, but for me, I, I openly tell people, do I want Ottawa to win? Uh, absolutely. I do. I live here. It's better for everybody. It's, it's, I make more money. Like I get paid by the game. They go to the playoffs, more games. I, I get paid more. Right. You're happier. You know, the people that I know in my life, my kids' friends are happier. You know, it's good for our city. It's good for the economy. It's good. Do I, I absolutely. I want Ottawa to win, but that doesn't affect how I call the game. The game no. is the game is the game. And there are some, there are some people that just can't get it into their minds that you're not calling the game as a fan, even if you would prefer that Ottawa wins. I, I do prefer that Ottawa wins, but you can't call the game as a fan. And there's there's some who, you know, and it's an emotional tie, and I get that, but there's some now with, you know, the roster. Well, why aren't you upset that, uh, well, today, you know, you look at Twitter today. Why, why am I not upset that they're playing Josh Brown instead of JBD tomorrow in Montreal? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Players play games, come in, go out. There's going to be a time where J- JBD never comes out of the lineup. But for tomorrow night, I would think probably because with the physicality that's been involved in this series before, might want to have Josh Brown in that game to make sure if somebody punches Brady Kachuk or uh, Eric Branstrom in the face, there's somebody, you know, but whatever the coach's decision is, yeah. but it doesn't, doesn't break my heart that he's making player choices night to night. I don't, I, I don't get involved in the, the day to day. It doesn't offend me. I'm not, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not irate about it. Coach is making a choice. And during the game, we can all evaluate whether we think that was a good choice or not, but I'm not upset about it, but right. people get upset that I'm not upset. Well, <laughs> as, a fan, as a fan, you get upset because you've got that emotional tie. For me, it's about calling the game. You know what I mean? Like there's a reason there's a, and I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not comparing myself to a surgeon here, but there's a, <laughs> there's a reason why they don't let surgery, uh, don't let surgeons operate on their own family members. You know, there's things that you have to do that are mechanical. You have to do the job and you can't have emotion come into it. Well, it's the same for me. I do my very best to call the game the way I see it, no matter what that is. I, I, and some people don't believe that, but you know, it, it really is true. I try to call the game the way I see it. And um, some people as fans want you to be as emotionally invested as they are. And other people think that no matter what you say and what you do, that you're too critical on the home team that you just, you know, and so that that's just the nature of the job. But yeah. 
Do I want Ottawa to win? Absolutely, I want them to win every day. Go along in the playoffs. Lots of games. Lots of games means lots of checks for me. My family's having more fun. My friends are enjoying it more. But it doesn't change the way we call the game. Every series, game seven, right? That's <laughs> seven games. Four, seven round. Hard on the players, but good for the pocketbook. Good for the bank. <laughs> Dean, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on. Before I let you go here, there's one thing I do want to ask you, and it's a bit out of left field because it's more of a personal uh, thing that I want to know. Sure. Um, so I, you know, on, on a, my own kind of tangent, I became a fan of the team in January of 2007. I was about eight years old. Um, so my first experience with that team was the Stanley Cup final run. And then um, the next year they come roaring out of the gate. They have the best start in franchise history and the wheels totally fall off. They barely squeak into the playoffs. Fisher and Alfredson get hurt in the last game of the season and they get swept by Pittsburgh. From your perspective, how the hell did that team crash and burn in the way that it did? Well, because in most in most cases, you know, um, unless you're in a dynasty situation, in, in most cases, teams that go a long way in the playoffs have to have some luck and they have to have a lot of players playing their A game all at the same time. The reality is in most team sports, it's very rare when all your players or the majority of, their player, of your players have their A game going all simultaneously. And that's why there's so few repeat champions in the NHL or almost any other professional sports league. So, you know, you can, you can have those things happen even with great players. Injuries come into it. Chemistry comes into it. There's a whole bunch of factors that come into it. But there's, there's oftentimes this belief that great players can't have subpar seasons. Well, they can. You know, before Ottawa decided to go into its teardown and take this thing down to the studs and, and people were going crazy about them trading Carlson and Stone and how could you do that? And, um, and I, you know, I agree. I didn't want to see either one of those guys. I understand the reason it happened, but, wasn't, you know, if I was the GM and the owner, that wouldn't have been my choice, but I'm not the GM or the owner. But I did point out to people, I said, you know, they missed the playoffs with those guys. So this idea that Ottawa was a cup contender and then they ripped the team apart, they got to within a shot in 2017. But after that, they lost a lot of games with those players, which showed there was things that had to be fixed that didn't revolve around those players. Now, at the time, you know, would a lot of people um, have loved for the rebuild to be centered around those two guys? Sure. And I, and I get that. I think history has shown us now with the way things have gone for Eric in San Jose, um, that that ended up being a very good trade for Ottawa. Uh, in the case of, of Mark Stone, not so good because I don't think you can ever get fair value back for a guy like that. But the reality is he was a free agent and he got to choose. And he has since said publicly, the reason he didn't want to resign in Ottawa is because of his age. He didn't want to go through a rebuild. He wanted to go somewhere where he had a chance of winning right now. As an unrestricted free agent, he gets to choose. You know, and I know people are, you know, they want to blame it on the general manager or he hated the owner or, you know, whatever. But I go by what a guy says publicly on the record. I assume he's not lying. And what Mark Stone said was that he loved Ottawa, but he just was not going to sit there and wade through a rebuild. And well, that's unfortunate, and I would prefer he stayed. I think everybody would have preferred he stayed, but I get it. You know, you got to the point in your career where you earned free agency, you earned the right to choose, and this is what you chose. I get that. But, you know, those are things that, uh, you know, happen on every team sooner or later, even with superstar players in their lineup. And even with the Carlson trade, I mean, when it yields Josh Norris and Tim Stutzla and Rudy Balsers, I mean, who, you know, we can we can argue about whether or not he should still be on the team, but but I think you're right. Um, you know whether the motives behind it were genuine or whether you know the intentions were what we were told. It has worked out 
at least well in the short term. Uh, Dean Brown sharing some great stories and basically confirming to us that Dominic Hasek is not going to be in the ring of honor anytime soon. Uh, <laughs> I really do appreciate you coming on. Uh, I know you're a busy man and I appreciate the time. Anytime, Brandon. Thank you. And thank you folks for listening. Make sure you like the podcast, share it with your friends, download, subscribe, rate five stars, all that fun stuff. It goes a long way. It's greatly appreciated. Make sure you follow Dean on Twitter at PXP Ottawa and check out the radio broadcast. Switch it up from TV every now and then on TSN 1200, the Ottawa Senators radio network. Thank you again for listening. Please stay healthy and stay safe.